Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. At Bannockburn, the English lay, the Scots, they were no far away, but waited for the break of day that glinted in the east. The opening of Robert Burns' poem, Bannockburn, setting the scene for the tumultuous events of June 24, 1314. A few hours later, an outnumbered Scottish army, inspirationally led by Robert the Bruce, defeated the forces of the English king, Edward II. The English were put to flight, and their king narrowly avoided capture. Bannockburn was the culmination of a war of independence which had rumbled on for 18 years. It paved the way for the restoration of full Scottish independence. Almost seven centuries on, it remains one of the defining events in the nation's history. With me to discuss the Battle of Bannockburn are Matthew Strickland, Professor of Medieval History at the University of Glasgow, Fiona Watson, Honorary Research Fellow in History at the University of Dundee, and Michael Brown, Reader in History at the University of St Andrews. Matthew Strickland... Let's begin, uh, we're going to talk about 1314, but let's begin earlier in the late 13th century with a dispute which became known as the Great Cause. What was that and why did it matter so much? Well, that has its origins in 1286 when King Alexander III of Scotland uh, accidentally rides off a cliff at Kinghorn in Fife and his death leads to... Accidentally rides off a cliff. Well, he was trying to visit his young wife, Yolanda of Dreux, for a night of passion, but it was a stormy night and against his advisers. Uh, council, he decided to make the journey and he was found the next morning with a broken neck at the bottom of the cliffs. So right. the problem was... <laughs> what a way to go. The, the problem was that his um, nearest direct uh, successor was a young and sickly girl, Margaret the Maid of Norway, his granddaughter. Uh, and any um, medieval uh, kingdom facing a minority was faced with a time of, of great crisis. Um, so the Regency government, known as the Guardians, looked to their powerful southern neighbour, Edward I, for protection. It's worth remembering that Edward I was the brother-in-law of Alexander III. He had a reputation on a European stage as an arbiter, the Justinian uh, of England. Uh, and also it's, it's important to bear in mind for what we're subsequently going to be talking about, that there'd been a period of unprecedented peace between England and Scotland. About 100 years. years. Yes. Yeah. 1217 is the last major... Uh, conflict, mm. but uh, fairly much unbroken peace up to that point. So, faced with this crisis of succession, um, the Guardians realised that they had to take action because two major competing factions exist within late 13th century Scotland, the Bruce family and the powerful Common family. Uh, initially, Edward and the Guardians broker uh, a deal could have potentially been of enormous significance, um, to marry Edward I's son, Edward, to Margaret, the Maid of Norway, which would have been a union of the crowns. But that is uh, scuppered by the death of Margaret in 1290. The Scots then ask Edward to adjudicate who among the nobles of Scotland has the best claim to the throne. And this leads to what you were mentioning, the Great Cause, which begins in 1291, um, it's a long and complex legal dispute. In 1292, uh, the judgment is given in favour of John Balliol. The two principal candidates emerge. John Balliol, uh, who claims the throne through seniority of uh, degree, uh, sorry, seniority of line, and uh, 
Robert Bruce, the competitor, the grandfather of King Robert of Bannockburn. So it's settled on Baelil, but Edward II uses this as a chance to exert more authority in Scotland. He'd he'd hammered the Welsh and he he wanted to become a hammer of the Scots in a way. And so he came, he he started to interfere a lot, uh, far more than the Scots uh, thought he should do, which led to a, a difficulty in the sense that they didn't like it and they got an alliance, they made an alliance with the French, the That's old right. alliance, right. which then provoked Edward, II, Edward I to march north. Yes. Um, there are a number of factors that we really see in these, uh, in these years, the 12, 1290s, an intensification of claims of English sovereignty over Scotland under Edward. Edward is essentially a political opportunist. Uh, one could say in the 1280s he probably had no sense of an invasion of Scotland, not really even till uh, maybe 1295-6. What he did is he provoked John Baylor, who he had established as king, by acts that challenged his sovereignty within Scotland, allowing nobles to go over the head of King John to appeal to the English crown. But King John's alliance with France was a was a spitting in the eye of Edward I, who then decided to march on Scotland. And what were the consequences of that invasion in 1296, Fiona Watson? Well, the invasion was designed to get rid of the Kingdom of Scotland. It was now under direct English rule. Edward sets up his own government in Berwick. He um, has a lieutenant, the Earl of Surrey, and a... a, a, a treasurer and uh, chancellor and as far as he's concerned that's it Scotland is dealt with, they took less time to conquer than the Welsh, he's going to go abroad for his main um, fight which is with the King of France over his own position as Duke of Gascony Um, so Scotland is conquered, Uh, it's supposed to contribute men and money for um, Edward's wars on the continent as indeed does England and Wales and that's that as far as he's concerned Who's he put in place in Scotland after that conquest? Well, the Earl of Surrey was the victor at the Battle of Dunbar, which had sealed the, the, the conquest. And then you've got a, a Chancellor, Walter Amersham, and a very important man, the Treasurer, whom the Scots hate because the Chief Financial Officer is the Chamberlain in Scotland, not the Treasurer. And he's a man called Hugh Cressingham, and it's Cressingham who is on the ground in Berwick and probably sees most clearly as the difficulties begin for the English administration in Scotland in 1297. Just to be clear, do the Scots still have a king then? No, uh, Balliol was captured well, uh, after Dunbar he was forced to well he was ritually humiliated and stripped of his insignia of um, You mean Scottish ritually, kingship. publicly? Humiliated yeah. When you say stripped you mean he was taken off him in public in it front was. of a lot of people that is in exactly. public. Exactly, yeah. that's exactly right he wore this, well, he had this coat, well in fact it was specially made for this humiliation he had So this it was coat. made to be ripped off? Absolutely I see. <laughs> Edward knows exactly what he's doing <laughs> and, and so the king is, is along with most of the Scottish nobility who fought against uh, Edward. Not all of the nobility of Scotland fought against Edward. The Bruces, for example, were with Edward. But uh, anyway, Balliol and the Common family are all put in prison in England. Um, so the natural leaders of Scotland and the king himself are not in Scotland in this period. Just to make it nice and complicated, there's, a, there's, there's something approaching a civil war rumbling away in Scotland at this time all the time, isn't it? Uh, since, yes. the, since the death of, of Alexander, the, these two great families and others joining in. So they're at each other's throats. Some are on the English side and some are in, living in what we would now call England in Northumbria as well. We must remember Absolutely. Scotland 
peel peels down into the, the northeast and a bit into the northwest. Carlisle Castle's in Scottish hands time and again and so on and so forth. So it's not clear. There isn't that clarity there. Absolutely. And I think that though one can say that clearly there is some sense of identity that people choose to fight for Scotland, uh, including the nobility, um, that there's a lot of this war that is creating a deep sense of antipathy and division that wasn't necessarily there before. But Edward, who is a brilliant soldier, Longshanks, uh, a great Plantagenet, goes back to London, indeed done, and a year later Wallace rises up and shakes his fist and marches on so-called impregnable positions. Yes, and he's not the only one. I mean, what seems to happen is spontaneous revolt because the Scots, you may not be surprised to hear this when they're asked for money, they don't like it and they don't have such an intensive government. Um, Edward uh, makes all these demands and a lot of the middling sort are very upset about the idea that they might be called to fight abroad, which they've never, ever done before. And so there's there's all these natural leaders in local communities uh, suddenly, um, without the normal leadership, uh, spring up in revolt. Wallace is one of them, Andrew, young Andrew Murray, who was caught at Dunbar, imprisoned, but escapes from Chester and comes back north to his father's lands, north of Inverness. He's another of these leaders. So all over Scotland there there is spontaneous revolt. But we, we, we single out Wallace. Are we right to single out Wallace? Was he the leading uh, oh. noble, dissident? Yeah, well, I think people, well, we have brave hearts, so that kind of uh, clouds our judgment. But, I mean, Wallace became the symbol of all of that for the Scots later on. And he is very important and very unusual and clearly a great leader, but he's not the only one. But he and Murray defeat the Earl of Surrey at Stirling Bridge, which um, causes great consternation, of course. And Edward's on the continent at this point, and he basically said, right, everyone stop, wait till I come back, I'll deal with this. And that's and what And he happens. does go yes. north, and he does deal with it. Absolutely, at Falkirk. He wins a battle, a great battle at Falkirk. So um, one of these rebels, um, Michael Brown, was Robert the Bruce, and in 1306 he became king. After um, after a murder, really, committed by him in a church. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you develop that, please? There's a lot of water goes under the bridge between 1297 and 1306, as well, you see. Well, I'm sure you can um, stream us down that very quickly. Uh, well, Bruce's record, as we've seen already, his family's record is very much fixated on what we would consider family interest, dynastic interest relating to what the Bruce considered to be their right to the Scottish throne, and perhaps more widely that Anglo-Scottish conundrum that you've already raised about the the, the land-holding links with the nobility. So his his record from 1297 to 1304, which is a period of of ongoing war, is is mixed. If you're you're judging things by a patriotic standard, he changes sides at least twice. So he's fighting for the English sometimes. He's fighting, certainly fighting for the English. He submits formally to Edward I in 1302 while the, the war is still raging, at least partly because at that point there's a possibility that John Balliol may return, and that, that's not something that, that he wants. So can we characterise him <clears throat> this time as determined to be king at all costs? That would be nice, but I don't think it's probably it's helpful. Not, but no. well, I don't I, wonder why it's nicer. I'm really concerned about whether it's accurate. I don't think it is accurate, because I think, you know, Matthew's already mentioned Edward I's opportunities. I think, to a certain extent, all politicians are opportunists. What the Bruces are concerned with is to keep their claim in play. Whether the opportunity will come is another matter. And I think what Robert is concerned with, as his grandfather has been, is to to make that uh, claim a possibility. How it comes about in 1306 may be uh, very likely to be a combination of accident and design. There may be some kind of um, hope and possibly even long-held 
plan amongst Bruce and his supporters that he'll make a bid for the throne. But the circumstances, as you've already said, relate to a specific act of violence. Bruce kills his main Scottish rival, John Comyn, in the Greyfriars Kirk at Dumfries. And to make sure that he's dead, he sends in his henchman afterwards to finish the job in case he might not have done it. Well, there's a touch of Don Corleone. Yeah, here, I it? think once, once you've wounded Comyn, there's not much sense in leaving a, a wounded man to get better and be very angry with you. You might as well finish him off. But the curious thing is, after that murder in that church, six weeks later, he is absolved, absolved of the crime and becomes king. He's absolved by the Bishop of Glasgow, Robert Wishart, who is one of his supporters and who encourages him directs him to go and be king, provides him with the vestments that he wears at his own inauguration. So one of the leading figures in the Scottish church is providing him with a platform to go and take the throne. It's an extremely controversial act within Scotland, which alienates a large number of, of, of Scottish nobles and presumably appalls a lot of ordinary Scots. And it brings this simmering factional tension that we've already indicated out into the open. Well, thank you very much for rushing through that first part. It really is important. But one more thing. Uh, he, so we got Robert the Bruce coming as King of Scotland there with blood on his hands and every other bit of him. But there you go. That's what, that's what is. And a year later, Edward I, a very great warrior, we're told, a great king, dies and leaves a son who turns out to be much less effective than he is. Uh, is the hopelessness of his son, he's described as hopeless in somebody's notes here, and his, his, his relationship with Piers Gaveston, which took him away from the, the uh, affection and admiration of his own nobles uh, and kept him away from Scotland for a crucial time so, so Bruce could build up his strength. How important is that before we fast forward to 1314? It's vital. It's um, you can see in terms of Bruce's position, if, if we're measuring in that before Edward, Edward the First death, he's penned into southwestern Scotland. He'd been defeated in 1306, driven into exile, comes back, but really is scurrying around the southwest, avoiding much larger English forces which Edward is sending against him. When Edward the First dies, the pressure is is removed, and Bruce is free thereafter to pick his own strategy to take the initiative. Um, he may take it step by step. But as English politics goes into this cycle of sort of um, virtual civil war and then rapprochement and then onto the next crisis, which really characterises it through to 1314, Bruce is just taking part region of Scotland after region of Scotland, largely fighting against Scots, largely fighting against his Scottish opponents who won't forgive him for taking the throne, which they believe belongs to Balliol, and for killing Colman. So Bruce is building up his strength in Scotland, and we it's all of you saying, it has been said, he was a very fine, perhaps even a great military leader, a particular guerrilla warfare at this time. Uh, and uh, English uh, strength is failing because of this, uh, because of the king who was not up to the job of his father, certainly. So th there we've got them there. Now, there's... Uh, We've got we've got to march to Bannockburn in a moment or two. But what's can you tell us the incident that set off the the decision by Edward II to march north? Um, well, the two closely related factors in late 1313. This is the political element. Bruce holds Parliament, a gathering of Scottish nobility, in which he decrees that his Scottish opponents have a year in which to come into his lordship, in which case they can hold their lands and titles or suffer perpetual forfeiture. And that really is the wake-up call for Edward, because unless he moves to the help of his Scottish allies, uh, they will be in serious and, and possibly a fatal trouble. So he begins to uh, plan the great army of 1314 in late, thir uh, late 1313. Um, 
in the early months of 1314, anticipating this great army from England, Bruce redoubles his efforts to take the great English-held strongholds of Lothian. Uh, Edinburgh falls by ambuscade. Uh, Roxburgh also is taken in in a wonderfully uh, daring raid by James Douglas. Stirling Castle holds out uh, under the the leadership of a man called Sir Philip Mowbray, who was a Scot but loyal to Edward. Um, Bruce lays siege to Stirling, an impregnable fortress which guards the eastern approaches uh, into central Scotland, absolute strategic key. Uh, he the bridge leaves... that held Scotland together, that's Absolutely. what you, one of you called it, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's critical. Um, it's also a very tough nut to crack. And leaving the siege in the hands of his brother, Edward Bruce, uh, Edward comes to an agreement with Mowbray, the, the castellan, by which the castle will surrender to the Scots unless it is relieved by the English coming within three leagues of Stirling on Midsummer's Day, the 24th of June, 1314. There's a sort of wonderful romantic chivalric, <laughs> chivalric thing comes in. Midsummer's Day, not a day before, not a day after. Was it at noon? <laughs> Had the flowers to be in bloom? <laughs> anyway, let's get on with it. Fiona, Fiona Watson. So the English then marched north with a, with a very big army subsidised by the Pope, more or less. That's absolutely right, although there is debate about how big it was. I mean, we know how many were summoned, how many actually turned up, given the unpopularity. Well, let's uncouple that. The Pope (laughs) subsidised it. Well, He gave them a lot of money, let's leave it at that. He he borrowed a lot of money from the Pope. Now, let's talk about, because numbers are really important, because the legend is that it was an Agincourt, the the small Scots against the mighty English and so on. So about how many Mm. did, without... Taking how about how many did, did the English Roughly. really have? Okay, well, I mean, there were supposed to be over twenty thousand. There certainly weren't that many. Um, so estimates go from about ten to fifteen thousand. And this is cavalry and That's infantry. That's infantry. Uh, there'd probably be about two thousand horse. So ten to fifteen infantry mm-hmm. and two thousand horse. They march north, and then what? Well, they, Edward seems to have been a bit lackadaisical in this. He knew the deadline, the midsummer deadline, but he kind of dilly-dallies, and he's got this huge baggage train that stretches for 20 miles, supposedly. Um, and so in the end, they kind of have to jog a little bit to come through the Lithgow and to make it um, towards uh, Stirling. Bruce, meanwhile, um, in through the spring of 1314, has been training his men. This is vitally important, and again, as, as you've mentioned, how great a war leader Bruce is. He is going to completely revolutionise the Scottish approach to this. The Scots are predominantly an infantry army. We don't know again, we don't know, but probably seven, eight to 10,000. It's not as the Scots like to make play up how great an army the English army was and how small they were. It probably wasn't as disproportionate as some of the chroniclers like to suggest. But still... It, the English smaller. army would be bigger, yeah. About two-thirds the size of the English forces. Something like give that. Give or take. Give or take. Yeah. Um, and Bruce has been training his men in the Torwood, which lies between Falkirk and Stirling, um, so that the practising... Traditionally, the Scots have had spears, their spearmen. Wallace had roped his spearmen in it. Falkirk where he'd lost. What Bruce does to revolutionise this is to train them to move, to be offensive rather than defensive, and that is his great innovation. Obviously, that's to attack cavalry because horses don't like to come onto pointy sticks. So um, he's training these men, and the suggestion is that as men try to, to join his army immediately before the battle, he sends them away because he doesn't want guys who don't know what they're doing in that army. So it's a very tight semi-professional force, you might almost So argue. this hedgehog. Absolutely. Moving forward, but well-trained. I'm interested in that. Yeah. He really did go out in the field and train them, did he? And Absolutely. said, do it this way, do it that way. Yeah. Six-hour days. Do you it again, it. do it again. Do it again. Yeah. And this is an army with long spears and axes, in one sense poorly equipped, but making 
taking tremendous of advantage of what they had, being able to move forward against yeah. the cavalry. Yeah. Yeah. And um, all credit to him. So, Michael Brown... Where did the two armies meet? The English armies eventually got up to Stirling with its 20 miles of baggage train and its cavalry, two or 3,000 cavalry and its infantry. Uh, pretty exhausted after that. But anyway, never mind. Can you describe the terrain they met on and give us the place of battle? I can. Can I just add, add something to what Fiona was saying, which, which is, I think, the other disparity between the armies, if you like, is in terms of leadership. Bruce clearly chooses as his leaders people who have fought with him consistently politically close to him and and very experienced in the type of warfare he wants to fight. It's Edward, a tight group. Edward's army, if you like, is led by his, his bitterest opponents aren't there, but there are a lot of people who have opposed him in the previous decade. So there is a kind of difference in terms of the cohesion at the top level between the two armies. Uh, in terms of where they meet, the English army, as Fiona said, is coming up from, from the southeast, is coming roughly parallel to the River Forth, um, along the old routes, the old Roman roads that, that run parallel to that, passing the belt of the Torwood. Bruce probably retreats before them to the new park just south of Stirling. So the two armies, in a sense, you know, rather uniquely for a medieval battle, are meeting almost exactly where both sides are prepared to fight when the, 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 the deal about Stirling has been made. Well, the interesting thing is, <clears throat> just going back to Michael's point there, is that Bruce seems to be preparing for a defensive engagement. I mean, Fiona's point about the offensive spearmen we'll see plays an important role in both days of the battle, but initially he blocks the route, the direct route, through what's called the New Park, a hunting reserve, uh, by digging pits um, knee-deep uh, holes with stakes that are then covered over with branches and twigs. And the, the point of that is to break the charge of the heavy cavalry, which is the key weapon of the English army. Can I go back to Michael for a moment and pick up a point you made about leadership? Uh, we, from what you've said and from what I've read, uh, the, the Scots there in Underbrew seem to be very cohesive, used to fighting, used to fighting together. His lieutenants go off and capture castles without him being there. They know what to do. They know how to do it. Uh, now, the English are a great army at the time. They, they, they swing into battle all over the place. But, but Edward, how important is the lack of leadership from Edward II? Well, it becomes one of the crucial factors. Of course, once you lose a battle, the argument goes in one way. You look for what, the reason why you lose it. So we're, we're working with hindsight, obviously, <coughs> in this respect. But yes, I think that it's not simply what Edward does in the campaign. It's the impression people have of him as a leader before that. And, and in a sense, we have a story that Edward is disparaged by his father, that Edward provides no military leadership during the crucial period from 1307 to 1313. And so the readiness of people to take his commands without argument, I think, is, is uh, an issue. And there are a series of, of accounts of English commanders disputing with each other or refusing to take Edward's leadership without a debate. I think it's, it's important to add that within his army there are men with considerable experience of the Scottish Wars under Edward I, men like Robert Clifford and Henry Percy. So there's the old wise heads, but they don't seem to be given any great um, opportunity to lead. And then, of course, you have the classic example where the, the English vanguard is traditionally led by the Earl of uh, the Earl Marshall, the Earl, young Earl of Gloucester, Edward's nephew, is also given command. So they're, they're at loggerheads, and there just doesn't seem to be a plan. <laughs> in fact, one of the, uh, the most authoritative chronicles written by a man whose father was, was in the battle and captured on the English side, captured in the first uh, part of the engagement on the 23rd of June, he uh, says that the English vanguard 
assault the Scottish positions at the, in the new park while Edward and his army are stopping to, to discuss whether or not they're going to camp there. So if, if, he's, if Thomas Gray is right, that would suggest that they can't even command the vanguard and the, he said the young men push forward in their urge to attack the Scots. Yeah, I think the, related to that is a, probably a general sense, given what they know about Bruce and his, his, his um, strategy when facing major English armies, which is that he avoids contact with them, that he's going to try and retreat. He's going to, to, to pull away from a battle and therefore when they can make contact... There is a desire, I think, amongst English commanders throughout the two days of the battle to, to try and press that home, to rush into to battle um, with disastrous results on both days, in fact. Can we just dig in a bit deeper here, Michael? You say two days. The English have got there, the Stirling Castle, very hard to take. There's the river, there's the Burn, the Bannockburn. There's another river which plays a part, so there's uh, uh, nearby. Um, and... And Bruce has prepared this, as you've said, very carefully. What do the English do when they get there? They don't, they don't seem to have any battle plan at all. Do they think that their cavalry, their heavy cavalry, will just sweep the day? I think they've relieved the castle, actually. Right. Technically, yeah. they've done what they've come to do. But they want, they want a battle. And in a sense, they're probably prepared to invite Robert to attack them. Um, on the first day, they send a second cavalry force. We've heard about the one that runs into to Bruce's forces in the new part. They send a secondary cavalry force round onto the cask ground, onto the low ground by the river, to get to Stirling Castle. And that comes into contact with a, uh, a portion of Bruce's army, charges it unsupported and is repulsed. So that's the second unsupported clash. Unsupported by Bowman, you mean? Unsupported by Bowman, yeah. yeah. That, and that is the critical weakness, and it, again, it, it argues for a rushed uh, and unplanned assault that the cavalry are going out in force, but they, they don't have infantry or cavalry uh, or archer support, which, it, of course, that was what had, had helped uh, Edward I crack the Schiltrons, these great uh, dense formations of pikemen at Falkirk. What is interesting um, is that in the preparations uh, in June, earlier in June of 1314, Edward anticipates the Scots will take this strong defensive position in the woods and he, he summons more troops, more infantry from Yorkshire and he says we will need these troops because the Scots have taken up a uh, strong defensive position in, di in ground difficult for cavalry. So they should have been better prepared. Yes, I think it's the speed with which they try and engage right. in a way. <clears throat> in a sense, the first day is the, the English advance forces bumping into Scottish forces, if you like. There's not a plan there. No. Is the first day the incident of uh, uh, Henry de Bohun and Robert de Bruce? Uh, can you, as it's such a heroic thing, can you describe it? It's a, it's a wonderful incident. Um, yes, I mean, just again... To, just take an hour or two. It, OK, no, no problem. This is classic, as, as I've been describing, the, the new plan, and this is young man in the, in the English van who spots the king on his little pony and he's got a little kind of circuit no, the, on his head. It's the king on the little pony. The king's on the little right. pony. He's on his great big war horse. He sees him and it's, it's go for glory. It's right, if I can kill the king, that's it. Game over, I'm, you know, I'm made. So he charges up towards the king um, and Bruce sits there really coolly and just as the, 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 this great war horse is thudding towards him, he wheels his pony round, rides up in his stirrups and brings his, his mace down right through uh, the helmet and kills uh, the man and the Scots go absolutely uh, mad. Um, and that's the incident that seems to be just before the rest of the English vanguard then, then charges and there's quite an onslaught. Bruce apparently gets a bit of a a roasting from his generals, because obviously if he had been killed, that would have been it. Um, but it is a classic incident, and it really gets the Scots going. So can I dwell on that for just a second? Because in those sort of battles, I mean, your images in your mind as heavily armoured men on heavy horses and 
fewer Scots cavalry by quite a quite a while by, on 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 ponies, and the Schultrons well trained, and the English bowmen not getting a look in, and these 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 rivers going by in boggy land, and so on. So it's all it's all sort of slow motion, sort of murk and violence, isn't it? Um, so. Uh, is 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 that something of the description? But it seems rather the English side still seems rather aimless. There is a decision made at the end of the first day by the English, which is that they will go down off the line of the the, the ridge, the the road. The Scots are blocking it in the wooded part of the new part. They'll go off that and down onto the the, the cast land, the flat land by the the river. Fort. Being the flat land. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is, well, I don't know how swampy it would be in June. I mean, it could be a Scottish summer, so it could be quite swampy. Um, but it's a difficult route to take, and the English spend a, a long time during the evening and through the night getting their army off the, the road, down onto this, bridging um, some of the burns, the Bannockburn, using material taken from Stirling Borough, which the castle garrison has now come out to link with them and to make... So the English do take a decision. It's not a good decision, but they do take a decision on like this. <laughs> And that's a rather surprise that the battle is going to last a second day because, as, as one of you said before, uh, Robert de Bruce's tactics have been to live to fight another day, haven't right. they? Yeah. And, and essentially that's, that's the, the, the momentous decision, is that on the evening of the first day of the battle, Bruce may well have been thinking of withdrawing into the safety of the Lennox. And the way his army was drawn up on that first day, he commands the rearguard, which takes the brunt of the main vanguard's attack. So he might have been thinking about withdrawing, having blooded Edward, having had this wonderful feat of, uh, feat of arms in which he's killed Henry de Boone, and the morale of the Scots is, uh, is, is enormously boosted. But and then I probably he, could have thought, well, the English have achieved what they wanted. They've come, they've secured Stirling Castle, they'll go home now. Right. So, and, and as I think Michael said, it, it's extremely rare for two great armies to come together in a pitch battle in this period, and still more for a king of Scots to take on an English army. Normally, sensible kings of Scots withdrew at any, any opportunity when they were confronted by a major force. But crucially, Bruce sees Edward manoeuvring his army onto this constricted land between... Uh, the Bannockburn Peel Stream's boggy ground. And uh, according to an English source, um, a Scottish knight, Alexander Seaton, comes to him that evening. He, he deserts the English cause and he says, the English have put themselves into an incredibly difficult position. If you ever want to win, now is your moment. Attack them the next day and the victory will be yours. And the next morning, um, they went to attack them, as it were, before the English, impression I got, you tell me, were really ready. They didn't expect this to happen. Well, there's the first engagement is between the archers, the Scottish. We're and talking about the second day now, the twenty fourth, yes. the one that burns right at the prime. Absolutely. Yes. So, the, and, and obviously, as you'd expect, the English archers win uh, that bit of the engagement. But then the English horse kind of um, line up, and they they can't deploy properly. They're in their brigades, but they can't spread <coughs> out, so they're all in one line. And that's when they see the Scots advancing out of the mist, romantically towards them, and kneeling in prayer. And Edward uh, says, "Look, they're kneeling um, in front of me." And Ingram de Montfort, Scot in his army, says, "Yes, they're kneeling, but not before you, before God." Um, and then um, the the Scots army that's advancing is, are these Schultrons, are, the are they? Are these that's lots right. of men, well trained, not all that, compact groups with long. Coming, coming like a sort of anyway. Yes, hedgehog. I was about to say diminishes the thing. A great army coming towards them. Yes, yes, and and the English don't really have a response. Um, they're they're hemmed in. They're hemmed in on the 
right by the, the undulations towards Stirling and the, the river, the Pell Stream. On the, on the far left, they've got the Bannockburn, which is a very uh, deep ravine at that point. Behind them is the Carse of Stirling and in front of them are the Scots. So the cavalry at this point suddenly realise they really have no answer to this. And the archers are not allowed to do And the cavalry rather madly, heroically run onto the spears and then turn. The young, the young Gilbert de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, leads a, a, a charge, a desperate charge, the purpose of which seems to be to try and stop the oncoming short trance. I mean, it, it seems that... It's not as stupid as... It was, no. Sometimes it gets presented as. It, it, does, it, it is reckless and it, it is disastrous, but it does have a purpose, as Matthew said. And, th- and that is to get the spearmen to stop so that the English can then bring up their archers and try yes. and thin out the ranks. But Bruce and his, his commanders, there are three main divisions of, of Scottish short runs, they seem to have taken the English by surprise in taking the offensive, as Fiona was saying. This is what is different from the earlier battles under Wallace. The, the, the Scots actually come forward in these disciplined formations. And as they advance quickly on the English, <coughs> excuse me, the cavalry have no room to manoeuvre. They don't have time to draw back to charge. Fiona, what, can you give us briefly the aftermath of the battle? Edward fled the field. Yes, Edward the first was, fled the yeah. field, and um, which people think was a good thing. Even more humiliating had he not fled, had he been captured and so on. <clears throat> but the English turn uh, and the slaughter, a lot of people drowned, uh, taken, killed by locals and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a rout as much as a defeat, isn't it? Absolutely. It must have been absolutely horrific. I mean, the, the English infantry are not really deployed. They start to run away anywhere they can go. Um, people are just scattering in all directions. And, of course, the Scots then, they just break out and, and, and follow them. Edward initially is, goes to Stirling Castle where Philip Moubry says, if you come in here, you're captured and that's game over. So he then charges towards Berwick on his horse with James Douglas, uh, Bruce's lieutenant, on his little pony trying to catch him up and unfortunately failing um, to do so. But then for, for unfortunately, most... Unfortunately, did you say? Well, unfortunately for the Scots. <laughs> From Bruce's point of view. <laughs> well, unfortunately, in terms of the impact <laughs> of the battle... Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, there you are. <laughs> we'll be dealing with the implications of the battle in a minute. <laughs> Sorry, I gave it away there. Um, but uh, so the Scots also on that day capture many uh, English noblemen, which is very important because they then can use the ransoms and many, many a Scot is enriched in that day, one way so or the other. So if you capture a, a knight, you, you're made. You're made. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Scots spend the rest of the day. I mean, the battle's over very early in the morning. I think the Scots spend the rest of the day plundering the English camp yeah. for the most part. Michael, Michael Brown, do we have any, any idea of the casualties, the numbers? No. No. Okay. Um, so, what did Ma- Matthew? What did, what did <laughs> my colleague, my learning colleague? That, that's true. We don't have a, an exact number, do we? But we know at least a hundred English knights are killed. Mm. And Barber says that two hundred pairs of, of golden red spurs, red gold spurs, are taken from the battle. That's a, a poetic flourish. But but that is an extraordinary number of of knights to be killed in engagement. And I think that there's something that we really should stress that the only precedent for that had been in 1302 when the Flemish had destroyed the flower of French chivalry at Courtrai. Uh, and indeed, the English sources look back and they say there hasn't been a catastrophe like this for the, the nobility since Courtrai. And how was it that these infantry, these Scottish infantry, could defeat the flower of English chivalry? Yes, it's not the numbers, it's, it's who. who? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the Earl of Gloucester, the King's nephew. It's, it's, he gets killed in that he charge. He gets killed in the charge. John Robert Common, Clifford, John the Common, steward the of the King's of, household. Yeah. Of, yes, John Common, the son of the man killed him. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, a lot of infantry were killed as well. Indeed. But you, you, you haven't found out how many. People <laughs> didn't take... A lot. They didn't, they didn't yeah, bother to, to take uh, the common infantry casualties. What would the, uh, Fiona, what were the political consequences of Bannockburn, say, in the following decade? Well, obviously, the biggest... For Scotland, for, for Robert Bruce, it, it allows him to, to 
to carry out his threat to disinherit anyone who doesn't come in um, to accept him as king. And many of the irreconcilables or people regarded as irreconcilable, the real pro-Balio uh, common people, Ingram Dunfrifo, uh, Philip Mubri, they all, they all accept him as king. Uh, so that's important. I think the other very important element is that as a result of the ransom of uh, the Earl of Hereford in particular, he gets his queen and his daughter back, without whom there is no future. For They've the been captured dynasty. when he lost yes. an earlier battle and Absolutely. taken to London. And, and that's th- very, very his dynasty, really. Yeah, because yeah. he has no ear otherwise. Well, What no. about Edward II, Matthew Strickland? Well, the interesting thing is that although there is a short-term repercussion for Edward, his um, a reform party within the aristocracy forces him <clears throat> to undertake certain reforms within his household and in, in governmental terms, the defeat is not as catastrophic as one might suspect. And uh, Edward holds on to power. Um, he's able to launch several uh, new campaigns. He, he tries to uh, invade Scotland again in 1322. Um, he keeps he coming back. Uh, that's a catastrophe too. It's he, and this time, very interestingly, Bruce refuses to engage in battle. He's, he's got away with it once. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't risk his luck, and he just allows the uh, the English army to run out of supplies and withdraw. And then he counterattacks and nearly captures Edward for a second time at Byland. Yeah, I mean, I think the the disparity between 1314 and 1322 is interesting. Bruce fights in 1314 because there is a political stake within Scotland. It's about the submission of those parts of Scotland, those Scottish leaders who haven't recognised him. Once he's got that, he doesn't need to do it again on one level. Um, so the war is, in a Scottish sense, the war is exported after 1314. It's about the recognition of the English king. It's not that civil war element anymore. But one consequence, as I understand it, is the, the beginning of what became two or three hundred years of border warfare... Because uh, the borders had been quite different, as I mentioned earlier, hadn't they? The Scots had spilled into Northumbria. We know they'd spilled into what we know now as Cumbria and Carlisle Castle was important, just as. Uh, and 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 they kept raiding after Bruce. They kept raiding the north. And Edward II uh, just sort of left the north to take care of itself, as so many uh, ordered. As so many orders, people in charge, uh, authorities in London, I'm trying to find the right way without implicating everybody, authorities in London have done. I mean, the wasting of the North is one of the great... Uh, the great effective defence of the North collapses under mm. Edward in this period. I mean, it really began to collapse from at least 1311. And Bruce uses the raids uh, on Northern England to force the locals who are deprived of effective protection from Edward to pay to his blackmail. They buy off the Scottish raids. Blackmail and that is a word that appears at that time. Indeed. Um, mm. And, of course, it, it fills Bruce's coffers. The Scots, unlike the English, make the war pay. Uh, it's self-funding at the expense of those northern communities. And then they become border marches and the, let us call them the English, begin to fight back and you have these wars yeah. every year, really. The these gra- these families, these, these, these families putting hundreds of men in the saddle every year. It's not a long period. I mean, really, the, the raids started in 1311 um, intensify after 1314, but it's a sustained series of campaigns end in 1323. But psychologically, I think it changes the outlook, not simply of southern Scotland, but, but northern England, turns it from being somewhere which the border is a political boundary, but it's not a social or a cultural boundary. And in the late Middle Ages, it becomes very much a military frontier, uh, which extends both sides. So it has a, that period, I think, is, is crucial in that. And, but we do have the border conflicts going on for quite a while, yeah. the cattle raiding, the... The, the setting but in terms of the depth and frequency of Scottish invasions of the north, down as far as, as the East Riding of Yorkshire, you know that that's not that that's doesn't not happen fair, again. No. Uh, and th- the the benefits to Scotland, Fiona, what's 
Well, the, the immediate short-term benefits are that the Bruce dynasty can continue in their stability and you do get the 1328 treaty, although you cannot point to Bannockburn as, as, as a direct cause of that. It's, it's the internal politics of England that leads to the deposition of Edward II. The Regency government is insecure and it wants Bruce off their backs and they give the, the treaty. The irony from the Scottish point of view is that subsequently uh, war leaders in Scotland, as the wars grumbled on, not so intensely, well they did in the 1330s but going on centuries, they always said what did Bruce do at Bannockburn? We'll do the same thing again right up into the 16th century they, they maintained the spearmen even when they've got guns against them. But to conclude this story in 1328 the Scottish got independence didn't they and, and then we have before then this treaty of Arbroath where they declare that they're fighting for their freedom above all else and it sort of is some kind of settlement in the Scottish mind and in the Scottish state at the time well, that is a very controversial document because mm. um, it's come to us to be this great statement of, of freedom and liberty, <clears throat> very inspiring. But in its political context in 1320, it's very much the product of this Bruce faction that, that Michael and Fiona have been talking about. So it's perhaps, it claims to be speaking for the Scottish nation, but in fact it's very much uh, a document justifying Bruce's kingship. Can you give us some idea, Michael Brown, of the uh, lasting consequences of Bannockburn? Um, I mean, I think the, the lasting consequences are that it provides the Scots with a military moment of glory. You know, if you look at late medieval countries across Europe, they all seem to have this kind of battle, which is either uh, a kind of um, victory against the odds or, in the case of the Serbs, a disastrous defeat against the odds. Um, but it, it, it coalesces ideas of Scottish independence and Scottish identity on the battlefield, and the battlefield is not simply a matter of delight for the, the military classes. It's a proof of the, 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 tr the test of God. You know, God favours the Scots in this conflict. There are a lot of battles that the Scots lose, both before and after Bannockburn, but Bannockburn is enshrined in Scottish historiography as being this crowning moment of, of military success, which, which sweeps everything else away. And as, as importantly in Scottish myth and legend... I think Scottish historiography and Scottish myth and legend are sometimes quite hard to distinguish. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael Brown, Matthew Strickland, Fiona Watson, thank you all very much. And next week we'll be discussing the human nervous system. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast, why not try others, such as Thinking Aloud, where Laurie Taylor discusses the latest social science research. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.